This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by the Lerner Foundation and listeners like you. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Today is the third show in our series on the Maine Wabanaki State Child Welfare Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The TRC focuses on what has happened to Wabanaki children and families since 1978 after the passage of the Indian Child Welfare Act. It's specifically centered on the state of Maine's child welfare practices, where Native children were removed from their homes and placed with white families. Today's conversation will be focused on the experience of giving statements to the Commission, how much hope to have about what may come of it, and the anxiety about making such painful stories public. I'll be talking with two of the women working for Maine Wabanaki Reach, the group that convened the TRC. Esther Atian is past Makwadi from Sabayag and serves as the co-director of Maine Wabanaki Reach. Stephanie Bailey is past Makwadi and a community organizer with Reach. She lives at Indian Township with her family and is a foster mother herself. Welcome back to Safe Space Radio, Esther and Stephanie. Thank you. Thanks. Stephanie, I know that you work as a community organizer uh, with the Maine Wabanaki Reach. Tell me what does that mean? What, are you, what does your work as a community organizer include? I do outreach in the community to uh, seek out people who are interested in sharing their truth, or I go and speak with them and explain the process um, and see if they have or are interested in sharing uh, any stories or their truth that relates to uh, child welfare. We also, um, as a community organizer, I hold uh, talking circles or peace and healing circles every week. Um, in those peace and healing circles, it gives uh, people uh, the time to come uh, sit together to reconnect, to share um, whatever it is that they want to share. It doesn't have to be how they were affected by uh, the state child welfare system. It's just a, a space for us to come together, to connect, to share, you know, talk about the hard things or talk about the joys. It, it all depends. And before this started, did you have an expectation of how this was going to go? Or? No. I, um, I've given up expectations a long time ago because I'm a mother. And so, <laughs> you know, our expectations can um, influence sometimes, uh, you know, the outcome um, of relationships in my experience. And so I didn't have any expectations, but I, I did have a lot of hope. Like I, I was so... I couldn't believe that there was people, you know, that that had come together to talk about these things. You know, growing up in high school, I I went away to a private school, and uh, that was a real culture shock for me, um, not realizing that people didn't know what it meant to be a Native American or to pass Maquoddy. Nobody even knew what a pass Maquoddy was at my school, um, and they thought that I lived in a teepee. And they thought I traveled on horses. So, you know, to come after all these years and my own personal experiences with the the invisibility of indigenous people in this country or specifically in the state of Maine, I was really glad to know that it, we were starting to talk about it. You know, we um, last time spoke about the Holocaust and, you know, the German Holocaust. There's documentation, you know, they have Anne Frank and who do we have? You know, First Nations people, we don't have those kind of stories. It's, you know, we were, we're invisible. So for me it was, um, I had so much hope that people were going to be educated and understand and, 
and maybe have compassion for us as just human beings because there's a lot of stereotypes out there where people judge us and they think that we get all this money and we get free school and you know there's a lot of things that aren't true um, so my hope was that it's going to create an awareness about the First Nations people in the state of Maine uh, the Wabanaki people in the in the state of Maine have there been surprises for you in terms of how people have responded to the invitation to participate? Yeah, there's a variety. Um, there are people who feel like um, something is going, like that we can come in and step into uh, an active child welfare case and help make things better. So there's people that initially wanted to give a statement thinking that something would be rectified now and then realize that we can't you know, give your kids back and we can't, you know, do something like that. Um, we've had some people back away and then there's some people that even um, know it isn't going to help their case that want to share because they, they just don't want it to happen to other children in the communities. They want to help so that we are all operating under best child welfare practice. So I hear in some ways that the biggest motivation is to prevent recurrence, you know, to stop it from keeping on happening. Do people also have the hope that in telling their story and in being heard that it will help them individually to heal or help them and their family or their community to heal? The ones that I participated in, um, I, I don't hear people talk about themselves, really. It's always about somebody else, that it helped them to be a better parent to their children or um, that they could help another family. So it's always... In my experience, it's always been to help for our future, for the generations. And that's part of our um, who we are as a people is to look out for the next seven generations. We're supposed to help make sure that the next seven generations are taken care of. Esther? Yeah, I think that what I have seen is there is a, a lot of fear. First of all, there's a lot of mistrust of anybody coming in, getting information, because we've been so exploited um, for forever we've been exploited by researchers by saviors by, by well-meaning people coming into our communities and getting information and leaving so there's that level of mistrust but i don't i think this 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 notion of i shared uh, if you share this you'll feel better you know i think it's more an outcome than an expectation i think i've seen people doubt that and be so afraid of that. Well, if I share, it's not going to make it better because I'll be up all night and I'll be thinking about it and then I feel worse. But I see um, people that have, especially those that continue to, to participate in circle, say that, in fact, you know, it did make me feel better. And I did feel better sharing it. I didn't trust it and I was afraid of it and I doubted it. But sharing has made me feel better. And uh, Maria often talks about it's a sense of relief to have this sort of like a diagnosis to the issues that you've had. You know, I've always wondered why it's depression and this anxiety and why I'm like this and why I can never get anything together. And so to explain to Native people the true history of what has happened to us and to talk about intergenerational trauma and to, to give that message that there is nothing wrong with us at all. We have the highest rates of socioeconomic distress of any population in this country. Our children are seven times more likely to commit suicide. We're least likely to be homeowners and most likely to be homeless in our territory. We have a life expectancy rate of about mid-50s for Wabanaki people. 
Um, we have a high dropout rate. We have a high diabetes rate. You name it. Um, but there's nothing wrong with us. So to be able to to not you know let people know that history, get, teach them that history, teach them about intergenerational trauma, and then give them the opportunity to share their story. Those are all three things that give them that validation that um, there's nothing wrong with us. And when you say there's nothing wrong with us, the way I'm hearing that is that the, all the devastation that you're also describing is a symptom of what has happened to us. Right. It's a legacy of oppression. It's, it's the result of, you know, genocide, a full assault on every front, you know, assault on a people from, for 500 years at least. And this is what those people look like that have survived that. And it's not only, you know, my hope for the TRC was not only to give people the opportunity to share all of those horrific stories, but the stories of strength are in there and they come out and to get our people to recognize that we are still here. And why are we still here? Because we have, we have a lot of resiliency, we're tenacious, we're loving, we're generous, we have a wonderful sense of humor. And these are the things that have helped us survive. You know, and not only to know that we have these issues or our communities look this way because of what has happened to us, but also to know what has happened to us was strategic and it was deliberate and it was intentional. That's a lot of trauma. That's a lot of truth to really let sink in. And where does that anger go and where does the sadness go and where's the joy? Because their joy is there and that resiliency is there and that tenacity is still there. We know how to be Passamaquoddy. We know how to be Penobscot. We know we still have those, those ways of knowing and being. What, what is it? Epistemology. The epistemicide is not complete. And, we ha- and Reach's role is to educate people about history, about trauma and its impacts, and, and help people move forward from that. So the, the deep thing that I'm hearing in you is that this is not only about um, acknowledgement and healing from past wounds. It's about Native people knowing their own goodness, yes. really knowing it, and not blaming themselves for the kinds of struggles that you're describing that are the legacy of the trauma. Yeah, and yes, definitely. Um, you know, that's the message that we give to Native people. This is not our fault. And when we educate white people... You know, it's the same history that we teach them. It's the same stories we tell them, the same facts we point out. Um, and and the, the struggle for them is to reconcile what that means for them. You didn't do this to us. Your ancestors did this to us. But you have inherited all of that legacy of racism, and you continue to benefit from what has happened and what keeps happening to Native people. So... I think it was uh, somebody on one of an educational film we show is The Canary Effect, wonderful film that people can access on, online, right on YouTube. It's called The Canary Effect, and it really, it's intense, and it highlights the history of the treatment of Native people in this country from Columbus all the way to present day. And um, in there, this one man is gives this analogy. He's like, okay, so um, you're... you're sitting home in your house and then a group of people come and they they murder you and take over your house and then they sell the house to somebody else so that person living there they didn't murder that family but they benefit from the fact that that family was murdered so they could have that house so it's that same kind of analogy 
So that, that's where the healing for white people comes in, um, to recognize that history and know that trauma and know how they continue to benefit from it. I mean, everywhere you go in this territory that we call Maine, you think about what happened in that territory, what happened historically there, how many Native scalps were collected so that person could have that piece of land so that it could be passed down to the generations. And nobody is, nobody's hands are clean. I think about yeah, where I live in southern Maine, going to Scarborough Beach in the summer. And to get to Scarborough Beach, you have to walk over a small little pond that's called Massacre Pond. And I learned, I went and read about the history as part of getting involved in this, to learn that that pond, um, there were many Native people who were killed in fights. That was not the massacre that was referred to. The massacre was when um, some of the white settlers were were killed by the Native people. And I it's think there were massacre. 16 of them. And that was what was called the massacre. The other way it would have been called something a defeat. Else. It, it would have been, been a victory. A victory right? Yes. And I have walked over that bridge to go to that beach probably every summer of my life and never even made that connection, maybe never even seen that difference. So that's one like little eye-opening thing that you're describing for me. So Esther, when you say that the healing for white people is in realizing the history, realizing that they have been benefiting from native losses of, of countless kinds, how is that healing for white people? What do you mean? It's a step towards it. <laughs> it's not the healing. Um, a lot of this is real new. It's real new territory you know, for a lot of the people involved in this work. No, you know, it's not really common to talk about white privilege like that and to address it in that manner and and to engage in those conversations around white privilege with white people and talking to them about how they can be allies. Um, I think early on in in this work and, and when we were going around the state and educating people about the TRC process to, to get some, you know, buy-in from the average Maine citizen, um, some of the, in, in some of the um, conversations, initial conversations I had with white people who wanted to get engaged in the TRC process and wanted to be allies, uh, there was some a lot of learning there that we had to do together and a lot of teachable moments, I guess, um, for for these white people, some of them would just wanted to um, wanted us to take care of them, wanted us to do it for them, and to forgive them, and to make it all better, and to tell them it was okay, which is not anything that we have that power to do. I think for me, as a white person, I think that there's this way I've always carried a kind of vague, uneasy kind of knowing but not knowing that it really wasn't good. I've had that awareness, but it's been like way in the back of my consciousness. And I think about back to Massacre Upon a Scarborough Beach, like I think I knew that that referred to something very devastating and painful, but there's this way that I kind of had the privilege to choose not to really think about it. And I'm wondering if part of what could be healing for white people is by turning and facing and choosing to learn about this thing that I've always kept kind of vague and in the back of my consciousness, if there's a way it helps me be a more whole person where I'm not like scared to know something anymore, but I can live with knowing all of it. And I don't know. I mean, I'm just, I'm thinking aloud here. I don't think it's any different for native people. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of truths I've learned. 
I didn't know about boarding schools before I started this work in the 90s. Not really. I kind of knew, but I didn't know. <laughs> you know. So I don't think it's any different, that face and the truth. And how and, and then when you hear how horrible it is, it's scary. And, you know, you want to just turn it off like you turn off the TV. I just want to say with the healing, um, when you become aware, then you can actually participate um, and and be conscious of the choices that you make and, and what steps you take and how you speak. You're like you become more aware of yourself, and that's healing in itself. And it's good for humanity, not just for Passamaquoddy Wabanaki people. You know, one thing that's been difficult in um, Reach's work in training allies and walking this fine line between how, how much truth is you know going to be the right amount, because you don't want to give them too much, you'll turn them off. Don't want to say the word racism because you'll turn them off and you'll just get a deaf ear. And and we want to, you know, we should say it this way and couch it this way. And so we're always playing that dance. I don't want to take care of white people in knowing this. And and the, that's one of the hallmarks of the way Native people internalize white oppression is we start taking care of white people. So I don't have the privilege of having interactions with white people that that are free of this calculation in my head of, okay, are you taking care of them or, are you, or is this who you are? Are you being nice to them because you're Passamaquoddy and you're generous? Am I offering you guys soup at lunch because that's who I am or am I trying to take care of you? It's a, it's, it's a burden. It can be a burden. And that gets in the way of those real you, you know, human relationships, and we have to navigate that all the time. Just it's, you know, as to bringing that up um, and going and uh, getting people's truths uh, that that has been brought up, you know, by some elders in our community is that they were afraid that they were going to hurt white people by what they were saying. Um, So it's, you know, it's true. That's very real. A lot of our people feel like they have to take care of white people and that they have to be gentle and be careful how they speak or you know, so that they're not hurting somebody, um, and they're more that way towards white people than they are even towards our own people. I mean, as I'm listening, part of me thinking, does it even matter if it's healing for white people? I mean, or is yes. this important to have it happen regardless? I think, I think it is. I think it does matter. Why does I, I it want, matter? And and I I agree with Stephanie. I I don't think that even if people that come to an initial informational session about the history and trauma, even if they're the ones that are sitting there with their hands, arms crossed, and they're not listening, they're moving ever so slightly towards healing. I I really believe that. And I think it's very important because white people, we need... We need white people to be our allies, mm-hmm. and we need them to be effective allies, and we need them to be on that path to healing so that we're not taking care of their grief and we're not taking care of their distress. So when we're, when, you know, we're, we're sitting in circle together, they can express themselves, and we don't feel the need to, to make it all better. And part of that, why that healing is important is that humanity, humankind, has an important um, future to to work together and to understand each other and to have compassion for each other because our planet is suffering. You know, Mother Earth is suffering and none of us are going to survive if we can't get past these little things and and work to heal with each other so that we can focus on, you know, what is cultural to us is important for the world, you know, our ways. And it's been said prophecy and, you know, that... Um, one day indigenous uh, indigenous people in this continent would be heard to help bring the great healing. Um, so a lot of people see this work as, as at the beginning of that process because right now we're in a very 
um, dire place, and it's scary. There's a new recognition that we need each other. Yeah. Well, part of what I'm struck by is this sort of terrible, vicious cycle here, because what I'm learning from you is, so there's all this historical and present-day trauma, and part of the legacy and consequence of that is the increased risk of suicide that you described, domestic violence, et cetera, et cetera, which, of course, leads to there being more likelihood that the child might be endangered or need services. And then if that child is removed, then there's a new trauma, and then all those things, it just keeps going round and round. So is your hope ultimately that in keeping children within the family, the extended family, that some of that trauma is mitigated and some of the kind of consequences of that trauma begin to be reversed also? Yes, and also that that transfer of knowledge, that epistemology, our ways of knowing and being, are still able to be transferred to those children because it hasn't been interrupted by them being removed from the home and being raised elsewhere. Right, and then that that child will grow up to be more protected from all those things as well. Those Mm -hmm. protective factors, you know, are, are all around identity and ceremony. I mean, we know that children who are more closely connected to their community and to their people um, have uh, those protective factors help them in their adult life. I want to close um, by coming back to you, Stephanie, and asking you about your own experience giving a statement. I understand that you participated in the TRC process itself by giving a statement, and I don't even know if you're allowed to tell me or if it's supposed to be secret until the report is released, but what made you want to do it, and, and what, what was the story you wanted to tell? I wanted to do it because I I believe that our community, we need to heal and we need to start looking at things a different way, even if it's just a child welfare system now. Um, so um, knowing that I did have um, some experience with the child welfare system, I felt like by sharing my truth, I could help make our system, the tribal system, better. So um, my truth is just about... Um, you know, of course, the pleasure of being a parent, but also um, my concern with uh, some of the way uh, things are not dealt with or addressed. For example, when a child is placed near care, you don't always know what's wrong. If that child has a disability, um, if there are current appointments that they need to be at, um, you know, a lot of different so little like a things. like transfer of the information, you don't get it. Yeah, you know, um, does the child need white noise at night when they go to sleep? Like, maybe the child's having a hard time going to bed and you have no idea. And the first couple years of their life, they just had some white noise in their room. You know, it's all of these little things. It's like, if you're going to really help a child to to move in the world, you know, and have some sort of peace, then you have to make sure that you're doing everything in a mindful way. And that doesn't happen all the time. You know, things can be really done in a hurry and and children will be pulled like in the middle of the night. That's Mm. too much. I mean, things can be dire, but unless somebody's under gunfire, why are you grabbing a child in the middle of the night? So, you know, it's things that. like that. And that wasn't, you know, that's just an example. That wasn't something I specifically lived through um, myself, but that has happened. So um, it's little things like that that I have hope. You know, they hear it and they'll be like, oh, my goodness, you know, that maybe we shouldn't have done that. You know, maybe our tribe needs to look and make sure that we mm-hmm. talk to get together and let's problem solve. Yeah. Esther. I provided a statement as well, and, and I mm. I did it just recently, a few months ago. And, 
even though I knew that I know the whole process, I went through the statement gather training, I poured over those consent forms. It was a different story when you're the person giving the statement. Mm-hmm. And even though I knew the statement gather, the research coordinator, Rachel George, took my statement. Um, it's a lot more intimidating of a process when you're on that side and deciding, do I want this anonymous or do I want mm. it public? You know, because I shared stories, my personal inter- stories about um, my engagement with the state child welfare system when I had my great niece in custody. And when, you know, some, some really uh, traumatic experiences of being forced to have a supervised visit with her when she was, uh, her and my daughter are five days apart. They're both little toddlers, and we were forced to have supervised visits. Um, my mother was forbidden to speak Passamaquoddy to my niece, even though that's who she had lived with, and, and Passamaquoddy was her first language. The caseworker was worried she would um, tell her to hate white people because her dad was white. And so this is, you know, this is in the in the mid-'90s. So I, I, I did share that story, but... And here I'm sharing it publicly on the radio, but signing that consent form to say this will be preserved and archived and your words will always be there and people, it's kind of intimidating. Um, But I did it. I didn't name the names of the caseworkers. I wanted to try to protect a little bit of their integrity and still share the story of, you know, how pervasive the racism is. Uh, you know, because just even though we've been working together since 1999 and we've built this wonderful relationship and things are better, that's not negating the the fact that there there is racism in 2011 the state of Maine Department of Human Services had a human rights commission ruling against them for racial discrimination against a Penobscot woman so it's not this is alive and well it's not historical as maria says it's intergenerational and it's current and it's continuing and mm. you know and it, and it, it's not an easy thing to have those conversations with the people that that i um you know, that we've been through this work together, the people in the state and the tribe. So some of the, the white folks from the state side, even now it's still hard, but we, we have those conversations and we don't run. And we, we stay there and we have them and we hear each other, which is the work. That's the work right there. So both of you have given statements and told stories about your experience in the child welfare system. How... How is it now as you just reflect personally on your own experience of doing that, telling a story that was very painful and personal for the sake of preventing this from ever happening again? How is that sitting in you now? How do you feel about it in retrospect? Stephanie? Um, I think in a way it makes me a little anxious when I think too much about it. Um, so I, I try not to think too much about it. Um, just What's the anxiety? It, it's just the unknown. I, I guess wondering maybe if I hurt someone. I don't want to hurt anybody with what I've done, with my truth. I really don't. Um, but there's a potential that that may happen. And, you know, I, I'm sorry for that. And, and I don't even know yet, you know, to what degree I've done something like that. So that anxiety comes from that. My I just don't want to hurt somebody. I don't want to cause any more damage or harm to anybody. But I also have so much hope for healing and so much hope for a better tomorrow for our children, for all children, you know, Wabanaki children and state children. Um, so, Thank you. How about you, Esther? I, um, I felt proud of myself for doing it because, you know, 
we're asking people, this is what we do is recruit people and ask them to go through this process. So I, I felt obligated to do it myself and to experience it. And I felt proud of myself for doing it. And I, I share that anxiety. And I'm, I'm thinking of the release of the report. And, you know, I mean, I've been recorded so many times and I've said so many things, you know, and, and my thinking changes. So, you know, if they if I did a statement three years from now about the same thing, it might sound totally different. Mm-hmm. So I, I just I just hope that people understand that when they hear something, when they read these statements or when they hear this show, that they know that this was this is what it's like in the moment now today. But I, I do share that anxiety about what. You know, are we gonna, am I alienating anybody? Am I gonna? Is anyone gonna have sore feelings? Are they gonna be able to talk to me about it? Is there? So I try not to think about it. Yeah, it's true. Because at the time when you're giving your statement, you're in you're in it, you know, and your hurts are there when something is hurt, and so sometimes you, you know, you look back and what did I say? And that's why it's um, really important, and I'm yeah. I'm glad that the commission has added this step. Is when they're mm-hmm. done with their report in June, they're going to go back to all of those people who provided statements and again go through the consent form and give them another opportunity to decide if they want a, their statement back or if they want it archived, so they can decide. You know, things have changed, and they can think about it more. If someone hearing this has not yet given a statement and would really like to, what can they do? I would urge them to call the Truth and Reconciliation Commission office in Ellsworth. Um, It's right on their website. They have stopped gathering statements for the most part, but they also, I don't think, would turn somebody away that... Um, they're, right now they're in the phase of analyzing the data, uh, transcribing all the interviews, and pulling their themes and starting to write their report. They only have six months to do that. So I would encourage people to still contact them and also reach out to um, Maine Wabanaki Reach because while sharing their story in one of our circles or one of our um, community meetings may not get it into the TRC's report, it still has that healing potential. And would you give me those websites again for the TRC yes. and Reach? For the TRC, it's uh, org, and for Reach, it's org. I always like to end the show with resources, and you mentioned a film called The Canary Effect. Yes, The Canary Effect. It's available on YouTube. It's um, a, a chronicle of the treatment of Native people in this country from Columbus on to the present. Also on, on Reach's website, there's a link to um, a video that was put out the, by the Maine Indian Tribal State Commission called uh, Dawn, People of the Dawnland, I believe. And that's a wonderful film. It, it really uh, shows the strength and beauty and abundance and resiliency of Wabanaki people. Esther Atian and Stephanie Bailey, thank you so much for being my guests and for all the time that you've taken with me to talk about this and to tell me more of your own story. So appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Next week in part four of this series, I'll be talking with one of the five commissioners of the TRC, Sandy Whitehawk, about her own experience as a child of being out adopted to a white missionary family and what that early loss of her tribe and her cultural identity has meant in her life. If you like this show and want to stay connected to these issues, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Safe Space Radio. And you can find us on the web at safespaceradio.com and listen to all of our past shows, including the past two-week shows about Wabanaki history and the TRC itself. While you're there, please subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released.
My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor. Coming up next is Speak Freely. <laughs>